Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is Episode 7, The Claudian Invasion of Britannia. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Michael, Dave, and Ray for joining up already. This episode covers the invasion of Britannia in 43 CE by Emperor Claudius. The major characters we'll be talking about today are Emperor Claudius, Emperor of Rome and man in need of a serious PR campaign, Aulus Plautius, his general and man tasked with invading Britannia, Vespasian, the leader of the Second Legion and future emperor of Rome, though he didn't know it yet, Togodomnus, son of Cunobelinus and leader of the Catavolani, and Caractacus, brother of Togodomnus and the other leader of the Catavolani. All right, let's get to it. Quote, Whoever were the first inhabitants of Britain, whether natives or immigrants, has never been answered. Don't forget, we are dealing with barbarians. End quote. Tacitus, Agricola. When we last left off, Emperor Claudius heard the pleas of Verica, the deposed king of the Atrobates, who begged that he come to the aid of his kingdom and put down Caractacus and his Catavolani. Emperor Claudius saw a larger opportunity in this, the chance to take all of Britannia, as well as the title of Britannicus for himself, and thus free him from the incredibly tenuous position he'd found himself in. Being emperor is great and all, but it's not as great as it sounds when your guard are the very same men who had just killed the previous emperor, your nephew. He needed the support of the people if he was going to last very long and conquering some barbarians could be a way to accomplish that. The fact of the matter is that any general or emperor who could tame such a place would be following in the footsteps of Hercules, the same man who had forced the gods to still the waves. And he also would achieve what Julius Caesar could not. And this was what the Romans expected out of their leaders. If you're an emperor, or even a consul, and wanted to make a name for yourself, you needed to conquer a territory. So it was inevitable that the Romans would eventually come to conquer the island. Moreover, Britannia threatened the stability of Gaul, and so long as it remained free, the Romans would have issues with Gaul, and a rebellious Gaul was a scary thought to the Romans. After all, it was Gaul who sacked Rome in 390 BCE. And while that cultural wound was certainly not in the level of Hannibal, it must still have played a part in their need to hold and pacify the region. This region were like the boogeymen to the Romans. Not only that, but as we mentioned before, Britannia was a stronghold of Druidism. The Druids had become one of the few international structures in the Roman world that was not under Roman control. In fact, it operated contrary to Roman wishes and worked to preserve their religion and settle conflicts between Druidic nations. This was nothing but trouble for Rome. Gaul was generally racked with internal conflicts, much like Britannia, but the common bonds of Druidism threatened to unite the tribes against Rome, and frankly, Rome presented a very easy common enemy to the tribes. And this had happened once before, under the command of a young general named Vercingetorix. So it was in the empire's best interests to ensure that never happened again, 
and stamping out the stronghold of this rebel religion that gave sanctuary to Rome's enemies would certainly help stabilize the region. But ultimately, those reasons are all window dressing. The main reason why conquering was probably popular amongst the upper classes of Rome, which really was the only group that Claudius was probably concerned about, other than the Praetorian Guard and their, you know, sharpened swords. Well, the main reason was probably economics. Rome's economy was built upon conquering territory and capturing slaves. As Rome's legions expanded, the workforce dissipated, as did large chunks of their income, since the soldiers in this period were paid, rather than being conscripted as they were in the early Roman period. So you have income flowing out of the nation, as well as large numbers of potential workers, since it required a large number of men to conquer and hold these territories. So there's a variety of different ways you can handle this issue, and the solution that the Romans picked was to build the economy around free labor. The trick to it, however, was they needed to have a continual flow of loot and slaves. And Britannia was a rich and fertile land. It was ripe for invasion. The thing was that the world was coming out of a cooling phase, and this was a period of global warming that started at around 750 BCE and reached its peak at around 150 BCE. The climate during the Roman occupation of Britain was warmer than it is now, which allowed for a number of crops that we currently plant in the climate of France, but at this point were able to be planted on the island. For example, can you imagine vineyards as far north as Yorkshire? No? It's a bit cold, isn't it? Well, not back then. That's what the climate at the time would have allowed. So Britannia during this period was relatively balmy. Further, there were large amounts of resources on the island that could be exploited. Copper, iron, tin, gold, sheep, wiry proto-Welsh guys who can sing in close harmony. This island really had it all. So despite the fear of crossing the channel, it was still quite an attractive place to occupy and settle. The land was fertile, the resources were abundant, and the people had not managed to effectively cause serious issues for the legions. And as we discussed, Claudius needed to conquer somewhere and becoming Britannicus would add a mythic aspect to the emperor. Moreover, Caligula had tried to invade only a few years earlier, so several of the pieces, including the fleet, were already in place. It was ready to go, so why not invade? Well, not everyone saw it that way. If this land could be conquered, why wouldn't Caesar have done it? He took two swings at it, after all, and public interest after the 54 BCE invasion was lackluster, to say the least. Even Strabo thought the island was a waste of time. And as for the men who would be ordered to take on this invasion, enthusiasm wasn't exactly at an all-time high. The thing is that in making such a crossing and entering the territory of a titan, they really would have been out of the eyes of their own gods. And that was a terrifying thought. As we mentioned last episode, about 50 years earlier, the men of General Germanicus were shipwrecked upon Britannia, and they came back with stories that sound like they belong in the Clash of the Titans. Tacitus tells us that, quote, Every one, as he returned from some far distant region, told of wonders, of violent hurricanes and unknown birds, of monsters of the sea, of forms half-human, half-beast-like, things they have really seen, or in their terror believed. End quote. Tacitus, Annals. It didn't matter that Caesar had already been there, and that he had beaten the natives, twice, Britannia, at least as far as the Roman subconscious was concerned, was the domain of monsters and under the protection of Oceanus. 
After all, he had repeatedly attacked Caesar's fleets, and more recently, he'd attacked Germanicus's fleet. And Claudius was not Caesar, nor was he Germanicus. Further, the men being sent there were soldiers. They weren't Hercules. So what hope did they have against such a god? So ultimately, the problem for the invasion lay in the hearts and minds of the soldiers. These men were not great learners and did not read the diaries of Julius Caesar. What little they knew of the island probably came from urban myths and hearsay. And I would be shocked if the stories of Germanicus's soldiers and Caesar's legions hadn't been embellished over the decades. For the average soldier, this was a tremendous amount of risk, and it promised very little reward. If the invasion was successful, it would not be they who took the title of Britannicus. At best, they would get some loot and slaves. And that's only if they survived. So while their leaders were thrilled at the prospect, the rank-and-file soldiers were likely petrified. And what of the natives that added to the legion's anxiety? Well, don't make the mistake of thinking that Britannia, following Caesar's invasions, was an island that was isolated and adrift. These people traded, they traveled, and they developed. We shouldn't fall into the trap of thinking that simply because the Romans weren't there, that time stood still. Oh no, they were engaged with the rest of the world, and they weren't the mindless barbarians that the Romans would like us to believe. In fact, let's talk a little bit about Britannia, since I've received emails asking for more information on this subject, and after Claudius's invasion, the culture would be forever changed. Now strangely, I don't think I've given you a description of the early Britons yet. And that was an oversight, so let's fix it. The Britons were reportedly tall, physically impressive, with long heads, light hair, and piercing blue eyes. The Romans wrote of multicolored tunics, which sound a lot like plaid, and they secured their tunics with a brooch. As for personal grooming habits, the nobles shaved their faces, except for their mustaches, which they let grow long and droopy. Their lives were generally spent farming, feasting, and fighting with their neighbors, and apparently they engaged in all three of these activities with equal vigor. Towards the south, the farming economy was also supplemented with a trade economy that was primarily conducted with the Celts of the Amorican Peninsula, which later became the Brittany Peninsula. As we've discussed, as far as religion was concerned, they were Druids, and their priests were both the keepers of sacred rites as well as their oral history. It appears that they had no written language, and consequently, much of what we know about the ancient Britons comes from archaeological finds, such as coins, or from the Roman histories written on the subject, though the latter certainly does have some biases at work. As far as battle, they were in the Iron Age, and their equipment would have been either bronze, bronze and iron, or simply iron. Obviously, the more iron you had in your equipment, the wealthier you were. Now, their battles weren't the enormous conflicts of Rome and Gaul, but rather they tended to be small affairs, usually against a rival family or tribe. And consequently, fighting was much more personal in nature. Prior to battle, the warriors would stiffen their hair with lime until it stood up from their heads and covered their bodies with blue paint known as woad. Additionally, they were generally stripped down to their trousers and torques. Torques were metal bands that were worn around their necks. And it seems like the more higher in status you were, the more precious metal would be utilized in your torque. Once they got to fighting, it was a loud, brutal, and passionate affair. This wasn't the organized legions of Rome. It was wild and frenzied. As for their villages, many of their homes were round, thatch-roofed cottages, rather than the rectangular homes seen on the continent. 
And when you consider the stormy climate of Britannia, it certainly made sense to create a more aerodynamic home. Additionally, it's much easier to sketch out a circular or oval home because you can do that simply with a bit of string and a stick. You just walk around the edge and there's the plot where you're going to be putting your walls as opposed to having to use complex angles and stuff to make a square or rectangular home. So it's just easier. So basically, these were more suited to the climate and they're easier to make. So bonus. That being said, not all areas in Britain were strictly British in style. Commius, in addition to being the first person in Britain to have his name stamped on a coin, also establishes atrobatic settlement in the Roman style. So there were some rectangular homes in Britain. And when you think about it, it's rather ironic that Commius, anti-Roman Commius, would not only build a Roman-style settlement, but also would have offspring who would not only forge tight alliances with Rome, but provide the pretext for invasion. Maybe it was fate and his family were destined to be the pawns of Rome. And their antithesis were the Catuvalani, who stood on the bulwark against Rome and her allies. Cassivellaunus, as we discussed in prior episodes, famously fought against Rome. King Cunobolinus, who might have been one of his family members, fought against the allies of Rome, the Atrobates. And then King Cunobolinus's sons, Togodomnus and Caractacus, completed the conquest of the Atrobates after their father's death. And they did that sometime around 40 to 42 CE. When you look at it, these two families belong in a play. You have one dynasty that was destined to fight Rome, clashing with another dynasty that was destined to serve Rome. All you really need here is forbidden love and maybe a few songs, and you've got a show for Broadway. Anyway, so whether or not it's fate or simply character defects, once again, the line of Commius brings invaders to the island. And since I've mentioned Commius, who is one of my favorite forgotten characters in history, we might as well bring this talk back to our main tale, and to Claudius. Sickly, club-footed, maltreated Claudius. In many ways, you should really feel sorry for Claudius. So, to remind you, in case you got lost amongst all that talk about lifestyle and houses, the son of Commius, Verica, sought Rome's aid against the Catovolani, who had conquered his territory. And Claudius took the opportunity and dispatched an invasion force of four legions consisting of the 2nd, 9th, 14th, and 20th legions. So in total, there are about 20,000 Roman soldiers, as well as an assortment of auxiliaries, marching towards Britannia, and all of them were under the command of General Aulus Plautius. And we'll pick up the tale in 43 CE, as they reached the channel and amassed on the beaches at what is now Bologna which at the time was the harbor that provided the major trading link between Britannia and the continent. Many of the soldiers sent on this task were likely present for Caligula's bizarre shell fiasco. But this time, things seemed much more certain. For one thing, it was not an emperor who led them, but rather a general. And generals did not have the luxury of changing their minds. Lined along the beaches, they must have looked upon their transport ships with dread. And you can probably guess what happened next. The general ordered his men to board the transports. And nobody moved. Ah, oh, hell. This was a bad sign. And they must have really dug in their heels and refused to budge an inch, because General Plautius did something that I don't think he would have done unless there was simply no other option. He sent a messenger back to the emperor and asked for help. 
Given the family line that Claudius was a part of, and the recent history with bloodthirsty Roman emperors, I don't think I would have made the same choice, not unless I absolutely had to. But that is what Plautius did. And rather than requesting his head on a platter or something else awful, Claudius simply responded by sending Narcissus to assist him. Now, Narcissus was a freed slave, so you might be wondering if this was intended to shame the general or if it was a genuine offer to help. And I can imagine that Plautius would have been shocked by this move. And besides, if a general couldn't motivate the men, what hope would a former slave have? However, Narcissus had risen high in the emperor's esteem, and also within his circle. So, probably reluctantly, he allowed the freedmen to ascend the commander's tribunal and address the men. We're told that Narcissus gave a rousing speech, but it fell on deaf ears. Rather than rallying to his call, some of the soldiers began jeering and chanting Io Saturnalia. What they were doing was referencing the festival of Saturn, where, among other things, masters and slaves traded places. Not subtle, guys. And we don't know what Narcissus thought of this, but it couldn't have been positive. And the implication made by the soldiers wasn't just an attack upon Narcissus. Plautius and Claudius were also being mocked with that chant. And as soon as they started doing it, many of those soldiers must have realized the tough situation they were in. Namely, one that could end up with them being executed. And that brief moment of lack of foresight put those soldiers in a really tough position. One that could find them executed. Because... That sort of thing generally was frowned upon, and the last two emperors were pretty damn bloodthirsty. Further, they had just been chastised by a former slave for cowardice. Mocking his former status would only go so far to defend their own honor. They would have to prove this former slave wrong. They would have to make a liar out of him. So, they would have to board the ships. And I can't help but wonder if the emperor blundered into this success thinking that Narcissus would be respected by the men the way Claudius respected him. Or maybe this was a master stroke, and he knew that by sending a freedman to castigate the soldiers would leave them no choice but to board the ships. Regardless, the gambit was successful, and the four legions boarded their ships and crossed the channel in short order. And, as luck would have it, there weren't any storms or contested landings this time. In fact, the crossing was wholly unremarkable. Once the invading army arrived at the harbor of Richborough, they quickly marched inland. And something that I wonder when I think about this moment is what was going through the minds of the soldiers. They had been inundated with legends of this strange and magical land. As they marched, do you think they realized that they'd been lied to and that Britannia was just another bit of land? Or do you think they were constantly spooked by every rustling bush? as they moved through the unfamiliar woods and marshes. I like to think it was a bit of both. As the army moved, there were some minor guerrilla-style skirmishes, primarily in the swamps and forests of Kent. And that was a smart move, since most of the Romans were not accustomed to fighting in that sort of terrain. So the Britons did have a natural advantage. However, Plautius was a clever general, and he brought Germanic warriors with him, who were at home in this sort of fighting, and consequently, these skirmishes were not as effective as the Britons would have liked. Following these engagements, a major problem with the pre-Roman and actually often post-Roman Britannia emerged. Disunity. The smaller tribes of Kent began to surrender, as did the Dabuni tribe, who held Gloucestershire, and also some other surrounding areas. 
there hadn't been a single major battle, and already tribes were surrendering. And to make matters worse, this almost certainly would have boosted the morale of the Roman soldiers, and helped them shake off the jitters following the voyage. These Britons weren't the mythical ferocious monsters of their legends. They were just people. People that feared them so much that they were surrendering without much of a fight. With renewed courage, the Romans continued their march inland, where they reached the Medway River. And that boost in morale might have taken a sudden blow at this point, because on the opposite side of the river, maybe about 550 yards away, was the British army. A writhing mob of heavily armed men covered in woad and sporting wild, enormous hair. And rather than running in fear, they were probably hurling insults and battle cries across the river, inviting the Romans to come and fight. This was what was expected. These were the monsters they'd heard of. And if it wasn't for their famous discipline, I wonder if the legions would have stood their ground. I bet there was more than one soldier who considered running away, and then, considering the consequences of desertion, thought better of it. Now, the flip side of all of this is that despite having these half-naked, well-armed maniacs screaming at them, the Roman legions were likely silent in response. That was part of what made them so terrifying. In an age where battles were loud and filled with bravado, the Romans approached it with silent and methodical precision. Just imagine what it would have been like for the Britons. Their experience in fighting was generally fighting amongst themselves. So battles for them were small, loud, and personal. Well, here come these human tanks that just stare impassively at you as you do your best to scare them. And they don't even respond. You'd have to be pretty fierce to not have that shake your morale. So that's the setup. And so the Britons are gathered, ready for battle, and now they're under the command of Caractacus and Togodomnus of the Catavolani. And while we don't know the exact numbers of their army, we do know it was quite large. Further, we know they were arrogant, because they bivouacked in a rather haphazard manner on the other side of the river, believing that the Romans couldn't cross the river without first building a bridge. But you know, we really shouldn't fault them for this. The Romans were heavily armored, and crossing without a bridge would have been slow, dangerous, and drawn a ton of attention. Therefore, thanks to their position, either the Britons would choose the time of engagement, or the Romans would have to build a bridge. So they were comfortable on their side of the river, believing that they had an effective rampart against the Roman advance. Unfortunately, they did not take into account the brilliance of General Plautius. After surveying the situation, Plautius ordered his men to line up in formation along the shore of the river. And the Britons were unimpressed, lounging about in their camp, because the Romans were really no threat until they started getting into the water. As the legions lined up, Plautius had his German auxiliaries sneak off on the flank, and once they were out of sight of the Britons, they swam across the river. See, the thing is that unlike the Romans, the Germans were accustomed to swimming in full armor. And so they did exactly that. And once they crossed the river, they crept as close to the camp as they could, and then they attacked the most vulnerable, and ironically, also the most effective, part of the British army their horses, and their chariots. The Britons were suddenly alerted to the sound of dying horses, and they charged the Germans. The ensuing chaos provided enough distraction for Vespasian to lead the second legion across the river and open up a second line of attack against the Britons. 
And yeah, that is the same Vespasian who would later become Emperor Vespasian. Things were getting dangerous for the Britons. And the fighting continued in a terrifying and personal manner for the rest of the day, and even late into the night. As the fighting dragged on, it was clear that everyone was becoming exhausted. And so eventually, long after the sun had gone down, hostilities were ceased, with the Romans bivouacking on their new camp across the river. But the fighting wasn't done. And once daybreak came, it resumed, and the Britons returned with an even larger force. The fighting was once again fierce and personal, and it began to look like the Britons would win, even without their chariots. But the Romans slowly and methodically pursued their own strategy. By pushing hard on the flanks and pulling back in the center, they were able to draw the Britons in and form a pincer movement and were finally able to encircle them. Morale broke, and the Britons fled just before their escape was cut off. Using their superior knowledge of the lands, the fleeing British forces were able to move quickly up the Thames, through the forests and swamps. Meanwhile, the Roman advance was agonizingly slow, as they had to be forever wary of the threat of drowning, as well as the threat of ambushes. And oh yes, there were ambushes. And as was the case with early British warfare, it was in these ambushes that the Britons most often found success. Except, of course, for the ambush where Togodominus of the Catavolani was killed. That ambush was not that successful. Now, you might expect this to be the end of the resistance. The Romans certainly did. But the death of Togodominus instead had a unifying effect, and leadership immediately passed to his brother, Caractacus. The Britons strengthened by a desire for revenge, attacked the Romans with renewed ferocity. But with every fight, with every stretch of land that was taken by the advancing Romans, it was clear how desperate their circumstances were. And so they fell back to Camelodunum. There are two schools of thought for what happened next. Some believe that Plautius was horrified by the new onslaught of the Britons and begged for the emperor to come aid him. I find that highly unlikely, as do many historians. The more popular viewpoint, and one that I subscribe to, was that it was clear that he was on the verge of a total victory, and he knew that that victory was to be Claudius's, as this was intended to be a sort of stage-managed campaign. Claudius wanted his mission-accomplished moment, and once Plautius realized that he accidentally conquered Britannia early, he needed to halt his advance and procure a final victory for the emperor. If he stole the emperor's title of Britannicus, his lifespan could become remarkably short. So in early July, Plautius sent for his emperor and dug in. From Caractacus's perspective, this must have been a bizarre development. And I can't tell you how saddened I am that we don't have any accounts of the resistance from his or any Briton's perspective. The Romans must have appeared unstoppable, and then suddenly they just halted and didn't move for over a month. Was Caractacus religious? If he was... Did you believe that his gods had gotten involved? There's so much we just don't know. Well, it wasn't until mid-August that Claudius arrived, along with his Praetorian guard, and I kid you not, war elephants. In the interest of fairness, the elephants might have been brought over with the intent of scaring the British horses, since elephants typically would have that effect. However, I'm not sure how many cavalry units would be bottled up in the rebel stronghold, nor do I think that they would be particularly useful in any sort of siege. But nonetheless, Claudius brought them with him. So yeah, after kicking the bejesus out of the Britons, 
and doing it so thoroughly, in fact, that we aren't told of any further attacks upon the Romans by the Britons. Plautius and his legions held their ground and waited. And then the emperor shows up with war elephants. And at this point, as far as I'm concerned, if any of you believe what followed was a serious fight or something more than an ancient photo op, I have a bridge to sell you. So Plautius guided the emperor and his guard to the alleged rebel stronghold of Camulodunum, which is modern-day Colchester. And the village was defeated in short order. Now, some of you military buffs might be saying, well, how was it defeated? Give us more details. The problem here is that there just isn't much to give. Dio would have us believe that Claudius fought a magnificent battle and went on to subjugate many other tribes. But Dio was hardly an unbiased source. Josephus claims that the battle at Camelodunum was of no importance whatsoever, and that there were no battles or casualties, and that it was just the efforts of Vespasian who brought Britannia to Rome. But Josephus was under the thumb of, you guessed it, Emperor Vespasian. So when he wrote about history, he wasn't exactly the most reliable of sources. He was talking about how amazing Vespasian was. But at the very least, Vespasian was there, so I'm inclined to think that maybe he had the right of it, that there wasn't much of a battle. Though, Vespasian also was not the general in charge, so I'm not inclined to think that it was mostly the efforts of Vespasian that led to this, but rather, it was somebody else. My thought is it was, you know, Aulus Plautius. But what we do know for sure is that Claudius was in Britannia for a total of 16 days, and when he left the island... He left it under the command of Plautius. Claudius and Vespasian both had their own historians and desired to be remembered as great conquering generals. But for my money, I'd wager that the true Britannicus was Aulus Plautius. Unfortunately for Plautius, he was not related to Augustus, and consequently, his honors were seized by others. And with that, Rome began the occupation of Britannia. But the fight was far from over. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, everything, really. All you need to do is go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and have a look around. There are plenty of links to the various communities that people are a part of, and they're pretty active communities, so you should go check them out. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>